Welcome back to another episode of the Notre Dame International Security Center Student Stock Security Podcast Series. My name is Liam Carr, and I'm a senior and undergraduate fellow with the, with the Security Center. Today, I'm joined by former Senator Joe Donnelly. Senator Donnelly served three terms as the, as the U.S. Representative for Indiana's 2nd con- Congressional District from 2007 to 2013, and is one of Indiana's U.S. Senators from 2013 to 2019. Senator Donnelly is a double domer with his undergraduate and law degrees both coming from Notre Dame. He currently lives a few minutes away from the university in Granger, Indiana with his wife, Jill, where they are sometimes visited by their two children, Molly and Joe Jr. During his time in Congress, he received multiple awards, among which are the Distinguished Service Medal from the United States Navy and the Legislator of the Year Award from the Indiana Veterans of Foreign Wars in 2008 and and the Disabled American Veterans in 2013. As a member of the Armed Services Committee, Senator Donnelly wrote and helped pass the Jacob Sexton Military Suicide Prevention Act, ensuring that every member of our armed services could receive an annual mental health assessment without any stigma or threat to their rank. Senator Donnelly is also a founding partner of the Library of Congress's Veterans History Project. In 2020, Senator Donnelly was appointed by Congress to the Afghanistan Peace Process Study Group with the goal of studying the impacts of a peace process or lack thereof in Afghanistan on U.S. policy, resources, and allies in the region. Senator Donnelly currently teaches a course on national security at Notre Dame and practices law with the firm Aiken and Gump and is the board chairman of the Sufan Center, which offers independent and nonprofit research, analysis, and strategic dialogue on global security challenges and foreign policy and foreign policy issues. Senator Donnelly, thank you for joining me today. I'm really excited to talk to you. Thank you for having me with you. It's it's great to be with you. Yeah, of course. Um, so today we are going to be talking about uh, the Middle East Cold War that's kind of going on right now between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Um, I'm just going to give some background really quick for all of our listeners if they're not familiar with uh, what's going on. Um, but basically, Iran and Saudi Arabia have been at odds since the Iranian re- since the Iranian Revolution back in 1979. Um, Iran is kind of the anti-status quo power, while Saudi Arabia is more pro-status quo, pro-stability, and so on. Um, Iran is also majority Shia, while Saudi Arabia is majority Sunni. And um, both are basically fighting to be the sole leader of the Muslim world and the Middle East in general. Um, This has led to a series of proxy wars, um, as seen in the Iran-Iraq War, Um, in each side supporting various um, militias in the aftermath of the U.S. invasion of Iraq, and more recently, um, each country supporting different sides in the Arab Spring and those resulting civil wars as well. Um, Senator Donnelly, would you have anything to to add to that, or do you think I give a pretty apt description of what's going on? No, I I think that's really accurate. Um, You know, Iran wants to be the regional superpower um, for the area, and as you indicated, um, the biggest change line between the two is that Iran is the um, Shia Muslim leader um, and Saudi Arabia is the Sunni Muslim leader in so many ways. And, and even though they are both sects of the Muslim religion, um, they have, those two groups have been at odds for a long, long, long time. And you can almost um, identify who's on which side simply by which side of the religious spectrum that you're on. Mm -hmm. That is awesome information to know. And then I guess where I would go from there is 
starting off, why should Americans care about this Cold War and who wins? You know, um, it's being fought by two non-democracies. It's a long way away, and both sides just seem to be creating more conflict. Like, what are the what are the stakes for your average um, American citizen? Well, um, for many many years, for instance, in in um, you're a little younger than I am, and so <laughs> back in the um, back in the seventies we had what was called the oil embargo. And so you had a slowdown of oil coming through the Middle East. Um, and because of that, we had, you know, like hours long gas lines in, in our country. When, you know, we were so dependent on um, the Middle East for our oil reserves and oil in so many ways makes our economy go. Um, makes it so that, you, you know, back then in the eastern part of the United States, um, primarily, um, most of the homes were heated with oil. And so it was a question of uh, having enough money to, to even heat your own home. Um, in recent times, you know, we still have, uh, are still very intertwined with the region in regards to their oil reserves. But what you've also seen is um, threats to our own national security. The, um, the vast majority of, of instigators of 9-11 um, who were on the planes were Saudi Arabian nationals. And um, the, uh, the planning took place in Afghanistan in the region as well. You also see that um, the, the great superpower battle back and forth um, if you, you have places like Russia who are deeply involved in Syria and, and other regions there. And also um, we, we stand with our friends, people like Israel, um, many other friends in the region that uh, their security is critical to our security. They're friends of ours. We work together on information. We work together on security issues. And so um, in many, many ways, our security as a nation, our ability to have the energy needed to run our nation is tied directly through that region. Yeah, so it definitely sounds like there's a lot going on in a, a lot of ways that the, that the Middle East certainly um, impacts us here at, at home. So with that in mind, uh, I, I thought that we could first start um, by looking at our um, relationship with Saudi Arabia. So I think something that's been in the news lately is um, how the different um, administrations have decided to approach the leadership question in Saudi Arabia. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, President Trump decided to focus a little bit more um, with uh, the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, um, whereas uh, President Biden, in light of the uh, Khashoggi killings and other stuff like that um, has decided to talk directly to the king a little bit more um, but that has received some uh, pushback given that many think that the crown prince is basically the de facto leader of Saudi Arabia. Um, how should the U.S. go about handling these different leaders within the uh, country and who is more important to, to um, be, be close with? I, I think President Biden is handling it uh, properly in this way. President Biden is the president of the United States. King Salman is the king of Saudi Arabia. And um, MBS or Mohammed bin Salman, 
Prince Mohammed bin Salman is in effect um, like responsible for day-to-day operations, more or less, of, of the kingdom. But the king is still the king. And um, you see Tony Blinken, who is our Secretary Blinken, Secretary of State, um, he is the one having conversations with um, Mohammed bin Salman. Uh, President Biden's conversation is with the king. And uh, a portion of that is to recognize that King Salman's still the king there. Um, but it is also to send a message to Saudi Arabia that the actions of Mohammed bin Salman in some ways have, um, you know, have challenged the values of the United States, the things we stand for, the Khashoggi killing, um, some of the other things we've seen, in, for instance, in, in Yemen. And so um, I think that it's being handled the proper way. And President Biden is, um, is also sending a message that by, by speaking with King Salman in the messages, look, um, we are hopeful and we need for Saudi Arabia, who is a friend of ours, to, um, to act in a more proper way um, in, the international, um, in the international world. Yeah, so you mentioned um, that MBS's actions have certainly caused uh, quite a quite a stir here in the U.S. and rightfully so with the with a series of human rights uh, violations and um, such. But um, President Biden coming in um, said that he was very uh, intent on holding uh, MBS uh, accountable for for, for those actions. Um, However, the Biden administration decided to forego any sanctions or other major penalties once in office. How should the U.S. be balancing their commitment to human rights, but also our commitment to uh, the Saudi kingdom as our ally? Yeah, the Saudi kingdom has been a longtime ally. And the United States also has a, uh, uh, an absolute ironclad commitment to human rights. And so you try to have the very best balance that you can, you know. The president um, contacting King Salman first was a, was a clear message that not only Saudi Arabia understood, but the rest of the world understood and the region understood. And that was a message on human rights that President Biden was saying, look, um, the way things are done have to change. Um, and that's part of why this conversation is with the king first. And the communications between Secretary of State Blinken and Mohammed bin Salman, I'm sure that message has also been sent. Um, this is not an administration like the previous one, where uh, the previous one, in effect, would broadcast everything. Um, this administration is not that way. They're more about results. And I guess uh, a good way to put it is to underpromise and overdeliver. And so they are not going to be ones um, trying to make a spectacle out of everything but they're trying to find solutions to the problems. Yeah, and you also talked about um, the Saudi role in the Yemeni civil war earlier. Um, they're very uh, in, in involved with a coalition that's fighting the uh, Houthi rebels who are uh, supported by Iran and are a Shia sect. Um, and this has basically led to the largest humanitarian crisis uh, currently on, ongoing. Um, some estimates believe the total in, indirect fatalities to be over 100,000 um, Yemeni citizens and about 80% of the population or 24 million people 
are in need of humanitarian assistance and protection. So um, President Biden recently ended uh, U.S. support for Saudi efforts in Yemen. Could you speak as to what the U.S. role used to be and how um, the U.S. decided to support the Saudis in the first place and how President Biden has now decided not to? Well, um, what happened in Yemen or what we've seen is a significant effort by Iran to create a proxy state in Yemen directly on the border of Saudi Arabia. So Iran um, has provided munitions and weapons, has provided uh, tactical assistance on the ground in terms of advisors and and military uh, planning to the Houthi rebels um, in Yemen. And so, you know, what what the United States looks at when they see that is um, Iran trying to create another proxy state that creates another danger in the world, that creates more instability, that creates more terrorism. And so that was why the United States um, um, was assisting Saudi Arabia and um, the UAE was also United Arab Emirates were also um, assisting Saudi Arabia as well. And um, what we want to make sure is to try to end this um, humanitarian crisis that we that we see. One of the challenges is in most of the um, the, the humanitarian crisis, the lack of food, the, the challenges with that are in the Houthi region, which is Sana, the, the capital of Yemen and the northern part of Yemen. And so it is to try to provide aid there that the um, Houthis will actually allow to get through. And so um, the Houthis are uh, very deeply responsible for much of what has happened in terms of this humanitarian crisis. We would like to help with that. We would like to solve that problem. You also have um, part of the reason uh, you, you know the Saudis um, are involved there is that uh, they're concerned about there's a there's significant number of missile attacks against the Saudi territory coming from Yemen on a regular basis also. But, um, you know, we, we do not feel that um, the way things have been conducted at every step by MBS has been appropriate. And so we did not want uh, to be involved in, in the military portion of that anymore. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Kind of getting back once once again to um, MBS and, and his role and kind of butting heads uh, with with uh, U.S. policy and U.S. values. Um, you you recently, ju- I think you just mentioned that um, that instability has kind of proven to be a fertile ground for terrorism and terrorist recruitment. Um, how should the U.S. balance trying to you know bring stability to places like Yemen and Syria? while at the same time, these often become protracted and prolonged um, civil wars and crises. And sometimes our aid and our help and our involvement doesn't really bring the stability that we seek. Well, I think first and foremost, um, our concern, my obligation as a senator and as a member of Congress was to protect and defend the United States and our people. And so we're where situations developed that were direct threats to the national security of the United States, then we have an obligation to make sure we protect our country. And you see um, uh, Iran, who 
attacked, you know, various embassies of ours who back in the, um, back in the late seventies um, actually um, took over the uh, U.S. embassy in, in Tehran and um, held our people captive for well over a year that um, spent their time creating um, some of the most vicious and nasty um, weapons used in Iraq against our troops. Um, Qasem Soleimani in particular um, worked with the, um, the uh, Iranian Revolutionary Guards to create what were called explosively uh, fragmenting grenades, um, the penetrators that were designed specifically to uh, be used as, as an IED, an improvised explosive device, to specifically go into our vehicles and to cause maximum damage and to kill. And so um, Qasem Soleimani, the Iranian Revolutionary Guards in Iran, all had uh, the blood of our soldiers on their hands. And so our job is to protect our country, to keep our country safe, uh, to help our allies who um, are working to keep their countries safe and to stop the spread of um, ideologies, to stop the spread of terror uh, that, that can take over an entire region. And, and so that's how we make decisions um, or how we're supposed to make decisions. For instance, Iran, we know, has tried to develop proxy states in Yemen, in Iraq, in Syria, in Lebanon, and so um, throughout that region, they've tried to design proxy, to create proxy states that could then in effect, Iran, Iran has pledged to wipe out Israel. Israel is our friend, we stand with our friend. And so um, what we've tried to do is help defend ourselves and our friends and to work to keep people safe in other countries also. Yeah, so it seems like a lot of the Saudi policy kind of, you can't really separate it from our uh, relations with Iran also. So I think that that provides a pretty good segue to talking a little bit more about uh, Iran directly. Um, you kind of mentioned that containing Iran and their attempts to create proxy states is kind of um, probably one of the, the biggest goals that U.S. national security policy has in the region right now. Um, how do you think the best way to contain Iran is? Is it through um, supporting these uh, coalitions like the Saudis in, in Yemen, or are we fighting more of an ideological battle that we need to win, or both? Well, it's a, it's a combination. And what you have to also understand is that the people of Iran pretty much love the United States. Um, you, you know, if you talk to the people of Iran, um, they're drinking Coca-Cola, they're watching our movies, they um, all want to be in Beverly Hills. <laughs> it's a large Iranian community in, in California and Los Angeles. And, and, you know, many of them have cousins and relatives there. And there's a, there's a deep tie between the people of Iran and the United States. It's the government of Iran. And um, their stated mission is death to America. Well, my stated mission is as congressman and senator was to make sure it is not death to America, that our people are protected, that our people are safe, and that those who want to come after um, the American people and want to come after um, our service members, that my job is to protect them and to keep them safe. 
and to do what's necessary. And Iran has stated, look, our goal is to, uh, um, is to cause pain to America at every turn. Well, when you see a country that, that specifically states that, and you know that they are trying to, um, through Lebanon, attack Israel, um, go into Syria and take over Syria as a client state there. They're working very hard to take over Iraq as a client state. And so where they go, what we worry about is terrorism being established um, behind that because they've attacked, um, they, they attacked in Saudi Arabia against um, uh, Americans who were living there. They attacked us in Lebanon where our Marines were located. So they have, um, they have the blood of hundreds and hundreds of Americans on their hands. And, and our job is to say, look, if you wanna to work together and you want to make sure that, uh, that the region is safe, that you stop your efforts at becoming uh, you know, the, the regional troublemaker, um, we'll work together with you on that. And so that's why there's part of an effort to put, toge to put together, again, the, um, the nuclear agreement, the joint, um, the joint nuclear agreement that we were part of before, that if we can stop um, their efforts on the nuclear front, if we can work together to try to create uh, a space for the people of Iran to be heard, maybe the hardliners um, we'll lose some influence. That's, that's part of the hope is that the hardliners will lose some influence. The other part of the hope is to make sure they don't have a weapon. And, and we specifically have said, Iran will never have a weapon. Whether there's an agreement or not, they will not have a weapon. And we prefer to do it through an agreement with them. And if, if necessary, if we don't have an agreement, um, their weapons will not be allowed to be built. I was actually about to pivot to the nuclear deal right after this. So that's a great um, little transition there. So obviously, President Obama signed the nuclear deal in 2015 and Trump uh, abandoned it in 2018. Um, Biden has spoken about how he would like to uh, make a return to the deal. Um, what would this actually do to Iran's nuclear, ca nuclear capabilities? And what does that do for like a, a, a timeline of um, Iran's nuclear development? Sure. So you have to look a little bit before the agreement as well, where Iran was working on um, enriched material to use for nuclear weapons. And so they were moving along on a timeline that they, they could have produced a nuclear weapon in well under a year. Um, what the nuclear agreement did was it changed part of what they were doing that they could still have some of their centrifuges which produce enriched uranium, this equipment. But it would be at a very, very low level, um, both in terms of volume and in terms of enrichment. So this is a little technical, but for enriched uranium material to be of the quality needed for nuclear weapons, it has to be 90% um, pure. 90% enriched. Um, and they were working towards that, working towards having, they had some of that material. Um, and if you have enough of it, you can, you can put a bomb together. And a nuclear Iran obviously threatens the world because that nuclear weapon with their missiles can, can those missiles can send them almost all over the world. So um, 
what the agreement did was it shipped out all of the 98% uh, of the enriched material that they already had in Iran. Yeah, it was sent out of the country that the maximum uh, purity, the percentage, the maximum uh, that they were able to do it to was 3.67%. Now, remember, you need to be at 90% to have enriched enough to have the quality of nuclear weapons. And so the, the, the centrifuges they were using were enriching at a 3.67% rate. They were not able to um, expand on that. There was a 10 to 15 year window before they could expand their enrichment program. Um, and they also could never, part of the agreement was they would never be allowed to have a nuclear weapon. And we've made that commitment. So we were gonna make sure that happened either through an agreement or through whatever steps were necessary to prevent it. This agreement um, enabled us to also inspect Iran's nuclear plants, Natanz and others, and to, um, to in effect have a program in place where for at least the next 15 years, um, they simply did not have, they, they were at a very, very low enrichment rate, both in volume and in quality. And they made a pledge that they would also never have a weapon. Um, all of that went away. Um, when the agreement ended, that ended. And so, um, when, when President Trump unilaterally stepped out of it, Iran said, well, we're going we're, we're gonna to move forward with these things. We said, you know, we'd stop during the agreement. So you heard them say just this past week, they are now enriching at a 60% purity rate. So they've gone from 3.67 to 60%. Um, and I, I, personally think we'll, you know, I think there's a very good chance we'll get back to the agreement. Um, and I think that, I think that it's a good thing to get back to the agreement. Iran is still extraordinarily um, troubling in terms of their missiles development, um, that the missile development is very, very dangerous. And we will do everything necessary to protect and defend ourselves and our friends against their missile activities. Um, there's still um, extraordinarily, um, uh, uh, extraordinary troublemakers in the region, in Iraq, in Yemen, in Syria, and in Lebanon. So they didn't change on those fronts. This wasn't an all-encompassing agreement on their behavior. Um, it was specifically to the nuclear portion to make sure that they could never have a weapon. And they actually um, observed all of the uh, all of the requirements of the agreement up until the time it was canceled. So a return of the nuclear deal definitely sounds like it would be a, a good step forward in improving the both the security in the region and um, American security here at home. So to wrap up really quick, kind of tying all of our loose ends together here, um, we just, President Biden just announced that troops would be out of Afghanistan by I think the end of September or thereabouts. And obviously it doesn't look like the um, Iran threat is going away anytime soon. Um, but there's gonna be this push with the um, Afghanistan pullout that maybe you know we should be less meddlesome or be less in involved in the Middle East as a whole. Um, what would you say to people that uh, would, would argue that we don't need to be um, in involved with the, with the Saudis and be 
backing Israel so um, so strongly? Well, our presence in the Middle East is actually getting smaller. Um, we're having somewhat of a pivot to uh, to the Pacific region, to China, to Russia, and um, our friends are our friends, and our friends help us to protect our national security. So we will be there for our friends like Israel, for our friends like Jordan, um, for our friends in the region. And we'll continue to do that. And um, pushing back against Iran and Iran's aggression um, also helps make sure that Iowa is safe, that Indiana is safe, that our country is safe. And so I think we'll continue to have a presence in the region to stand with our friends and to keep our country safe. Well, I would just really like to thank you once again for joining me on this podcast. Um, I thought that was a really enlightening conversation, and I just can't thank you enough for joining me today. It's my privilege. Go Irish. Go Irish. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash N-D-I-S-C forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag N-D underscore I-S-C. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap.